On the 12th of January 1950, U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson arrived at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. to give a speech that became notorious. Acheson set out a defensive perimeter for the U.S. in the Pacific, a line on the map which put Korea beyond U.S. influence. A new day has dawned in Asia, Acheson claimed, in which the Asian peoples are on their own and know it. In future, Acheson declared, America would only help where conditions of help are really sensible and possible. In June that year, North Korean forces crossed the 38th parallel, and Acheson was accused, perhaps unfairly, of having encouraged Kim Il-sung and Stalin to believe they could act with impunity. Perhaps the real lesson from this is that what countries plan to do in the event of a crisis is often very different to what they actually do when that crisis hits. The US did go to war to defend South Korea, but would it fight for Taiwan now? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and each week we discuss one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, would America go to war over Taiwan? Taiwan is arguably America's defining foreign policy challenge. The island's at the center of America's competition with China, both economic and ideological. America's carefully calibrated ambiguity over whether it would defend Taiwan, which it's maintained since it opened relations with China in 1979, is getting harder to sustain as Chinese power grows. We'll ask whether a Chinese attack on Taiwan is likely, consider the new school of restraint influencing Washington's hawks and doves, and look back at the origins of the strategic ambiguity that has informed America's Taiwan policy for the past 40 years. With me, as ever, to make sense of all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's going on in New York? I'm well. New York is dressed up in all its Christmas finery. There are lights draped everywhere and the shop windows are looking very festive. But I was really interested in some of the polling data I saw this week about the economy that people don't particularly think that the stimulus or some of the money from the child tax credit has helped them. And they're very worried about inflation. And so together, those two things add up to bad news politically, I think, for Democrats. But I'm kind of fascinated by that general gloominess. John Fassman, how about you? How are things going? Are you feeling irrationally gloomy also? My gloom is entirely rational. (laughs) I think it's an interesting question, though. My suspicion is that people are gloomy because inflation hits them directly and jobs numbers are usually more abstract unless it's someone who's just started a new job. Charlotte, there's been a lot of news about Russian aggression in Ukraine, potential aggression. Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden had a call this week. Thankfully, there's been no invasion of Ukraine uh, so far, but there's certainly been some tension there. Yes, I think there's a big question that Vladimir Putin is testing, which is how far can he go with Ukraine without inciting some kind of American response? And I think that question is hugely important 
for Ukraine and for America and Russian relations. But the even bigger question is how far can China push America with Taiwan? Um, in both instances, you have, in Ukraine's case, Russia very much views Ukraine as part of Russia historically. The same is true of Taiwan, but the stakes are much higher with Taiwan and the economies are much more intertwined, America's and China's economies. So everything about it means that it's a, an even more urgent and dangerous question. John Fassman, what have you made of what went down or what didn't go down in on the border between Russia and Ukraine this week? I know Ukraine's a country you're very interested in. I mean, did you see this as anything different or just more of the same from Vladimir Putin? I didn't see it as anything different. I think the summit, the talk between the two of them was a good sign. Of course, it produced no immediate change in the status quo. But I share Charlotte's view that what Putin is doing is sort of testing to see how far he can go. I think that there's very little chance that America actually will come to Ukraine's defense militarily, at least not without other NATO forces. And so I think we'll see in the coming weeks and months what the actual result of the summit was, what actually paid off, and what Vladimir Putin's strategic calculations are. Well, everyone else has been thinking about Ukraine and Russia. We've been thinking about Taiwan. America has ruled out an armed defense of Ukraine, though it might come to Ukraine's defense in some other way. However, its response to any attack that China might mount on Taiwan remains unknown and deliberately ambiguous. The Chinese Navy is now bigger than America's. The two nations, meanwhile, are sort of economically enmeshed. China is also determined that Taiwan is part of China and will, if necessary, take it back by force. But failure to defend Taiwan on America's part could signal the end of America's global supremacy. When President Biden and President Xi Jinping talked in November, President Biden said it was essential to ensure that the competition between our countries does not veer into conflict, whether intended or unintended. Mr Xi, for his part, warned that whoever plays with fire will get burnt. Let's start with a view from China. David Rennie, who's a friend of the podcast, is The Economist's Beijing correspondent and a former Lexington columnist. He now writes the Chaguan column. I began by asking David whether an assault on Taiwan by China's People's Liberation Army seems likely. You don't have to guess that the People's Liberation Army has been given a mission to be in a position to invade and conquer and occupy Taiwan. They have been buying exactly the weapons that you need to invade an island that is across about 100 miles of very choppy water. They've been investing massively in amphibious kind of landing, even things like civilian ferries with strengthened decks and ramps so they can carry tanks and armoured personnel carriers, helicopters, a massive increase of their missile force on the Chinese coast, but also very specific, very high-tech weapons with very evocative names like carrier-killing missiles. And that is about the fact that if China is to have a hope of taking Taiwan, then they have to take it quickly, and hope that the Taiwanese surrender fast before the Americans turn up. And in order to do that, you need to give the Americans pause and make them realise that they would pay an enormous price if they did intervene. And so you need to sink their aircraft carriers, kill a lot of Americans without triggering a third world war. So when it comes to the intentions of the leadership, there's obviously a bit of a spectrum in China between hawks who think that Taiwan should be invaded last week uh, and more dovish people. How do you go about determining where the sort of centre of gravity is on that debate in China? I mean, the bottom line is that it should be unimaginable that there could ever be a war between the Americans and the Chinese. They're two giant nuclear armed powers over this island of 23 million people. How could that even be a possible sort of scenario. Yet it is a realistic, unfortunately, scenario. And then essentially that boils down to 
Two political questions on the Chinese side. Does the Chinese Communist Party leadership think that it needs to do it, that it's running out of any other options? And on the American side, if that war seems imminent or is breaking out, does America really think that defending Taiwan is a vital national interest of the United States that is worth spending a tremendous amount of blood and treasure on? And then there are two subsidiary but very important military questions on both sides, the PLA, can they do it and win? And on the American side, are they strong enough to deter the PLA credibly? The PLA may not feel confident they can take the Americans, but the American, the gap is really close. And so what you hear in Washington when you talk to people is that there's a sense of a kind of 10-year, very, very dangerous window where the Americans are not far enough ahead, where the PLA is really very capable and where the Americans need to really invest uh, in some new kit, but also they need to take some very serious sort of doctrinal decisions that do they try and double down on the old belief that America is so infinitely powerful that it can fight right up to China's shores with essentially impunity? Or is China now so strong that they're going to have to find a new doctrine? Can you help us think through the calculation for the Chinese government here? Because as you describe it, as many strategists say, that you've got this 10-year window during which many Americans worry that the deterrence isn't credible enough. Americans, Taiwanese, perhaps, you know, other members of the Western Alliance. So what are the likeliest trigger points? Is it some sort of instability uh, within China, you know, some need to kind of rally the nation behind something? Or is it more likely to come from you know, a very strong, very confident China, one which, you know, in which Xi Jinping's authority is as it is at the moment, utterly unchallenged? Or is there some other thing that we ought to be thinking about in terms of the kind of factors that might tip China over the edge towards making that, that move? I think one way to try and understand it is to think the passage of time works in two opposite ways for China. Every passing year, the Taiwanese military gets weaker in relative terms compared to the PLA. And the PLA looks more capable of pushing the Americans back towards Hawaii and the American heartland. Um, So in that case, that would be a reason to stay calm. If you get stronger every year and the relative balance of power is tipping your way, why risk an early invasion that fails, which would be a catastrophe for the Chinese Communist Party? Why not wait another 10 years? Because you might be even better off in 10 years' time. So that would be a reason for optimism and calm that there's not going to be a war imminently. And another reason to think there isn't going to be a war kind of next year is that sitting here in Beijing, you simply do not hear the formidable propaganda machine of the Chinese Communist Party whipping people up into a kind of nationalist frenzy on the Taiwan question that would be kind of the precursor to that kind of uh, adventure. That's a reason to stay calm. The thing that makes me anxious is that with every passing year, it is simply so much less appealing for the broad mass of Taiwanese public opinion to imagine any deal where China offers them, you know, even substantial autonomy. You know, the phrase one country, two systems, which has become a kind of cruel joke in the context of Hong Kong, was invented as an offer to the people of Taiwan. Deng Xiaoping, the former paramount leader, crafted the idea of one country, two systems as an offer to Taiwan that was then later, you know, as a sort of trial run, offered to the people of Hong Kong. So the fact that Xi Jinping, in the pursuit of total political control of Hong Kong, was willing to trash one country, two systems in Hong Kong is a fairly chilling symbol, I think, that the Communist Party leadership has kind of given up on doing it the nice way with the Taiwanese. 
Charlotte, David said there that war between the two nuclear armed superpowers, America and China, over Taiwan ought to be unthinkable, and yet it isn't. Why is it not unthinkable? Well, we heard from David some of the things that have changed more recently on the Chinese side. I think within America, one thing that's interesting is the bipartisan nature of an increasingly hostile stance towards China. So there's President Biden who is trying to maintain this ambiguity, the strategic ambiguity. But there are Republicans as well who are real China hawks. You can think of Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio. These are people who are trying to position themselves as picking up some of the sentiment from the Trump years, but doing so in a way that feels grounded in a real intellectual argument for being hawkish on China. And I think one thing that's so kind of strange about how Republican foreign policy has evolved is you combine a fatigue with democracy building, a fatigue with the traditional neoconservative foreign policy approach. You combine that with a very aggressive stance on China. Um, If you look to Ohio, Rob Portman, who is a former trade representative, Senator Rob Portman is retiring. J.D. Vance wants to replace him. He was an author who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, some people may remember. Um, He's someone who's explicitly skeptical of trade and is hawkish on China. So I think that you combine this economic nationalism with a more aggressive stance on China. And that's something that is quite interesting, I think, within America, when you think about the ways in which uh, people may view us as wanting to become less economically dependent on China and more open to aggression. It seems to me that that sort of combination, the hawkishness and an economic nationalism, is the sort of thing that can lead to unintended consequences. I think the big question from the American side is what does the day after a successful war to defend Taiwan look like? Obviously, as David points out, there'll be an enormous amount of casualties. It'll be a hugely pyrrhic victory if it occurs. And the fear is, from some people, I think, that America becomes a sort of permanent defense guarantor of Taiwan. And I don't know how sustainable that is for the long term. We have just seen America pull out of Afghanistan. Americans are fatigued with long wars and overseas deployments. Does America have the stomach for that? On the other hand, on the Chinese side, one concern I have is that China is seems to be at sort of at the peak of its population. It's resource stretched, it's people stretched. And so if it feels that it is currently at the apex of its strength, that makes an invasion much more likely. If it fears future decline, that makes an invasion much more likely. I continue to think also that America's withdrawal from the TPP will continue to be seen as a huge strategic blunder. That was the sort of soft power economic approach that could have contained China quite effectively. It's a shame we didn't do it. I think there's a real risk uh, right now of an unconsidered conflict that would lead to deleterious consequences both for America and China. On the Chinese side, it's worth saying that Chinese propaganda maintains this fiction that the people of Taiwan actually want to become part of China, that most of them do. Um, Of course, if you look at the opinion polling, that's not the case at all. And only a tiny minority of Taiwanese self-identify as Chinese, I think about 4% overall. And that according to Chinese law, if reunification isn't going to be achieved peacefully and voluntarily, it must be achieved by force. So there is this pretty strong imperative there within Chinese law. Now, perhaps it's something that can be ignored uh, by the Chinese leadership. You know, perhaps they're happy to carry on fudging it and you know, carry on with this fiction that actually Taiwan is just going to come back to, to China and maybe you just you know, run the clock 
uh, indefinitely uh, with that fiction in place. But also talking to David and to other people, you know, there's a real sense in which the Communist Party's legitimacy is partly derived from this mission to reunify, as they see it, China. And the only way to do that now, unfortunately, looks like being by force. Especially given their recent treatment of Hong Kong, right? If China did want to appeal to the Taiwanese people to rejoin them voluntarily, it's hard to think of a worse way to do that than what it has done in Hong Kong over the past two years. Okay, well, we'll be back in a moment to look at strategic ambiguity, the phrase that has defined America's Taiwan policy for decades. First, the usual reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, then you're missing out. This week's issue has lots more about what America would be prepared to fight for, as well as stories about Donald Trump's fishy new media spac and sunsetting Congress's favourite budgetary trick. You'll find the best offer on a subscription at economist.com slash uspod. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode. In 1950, when Dean Acheson gave his defensive perimeter speech, the Chinese Civil War had only recently ended, with the Kuomintang government and millions of Chinese refugees fleeing the victorious Chinese Communist Party for the island of Taiwan. America recognized the Taiwan-based Republic of China as the legitimate government of China for almost three decades. One sign of a change in America's stance was the arrival in Washington of Communist China's Vice Premier Deng Xiaoping in January 1979. President Jimmy Carter hosts Vice Premier Deng Xiaoping at the arrival ceremony at the White House. For too long, our two peoples were cut off from one another. Now we share the prospect of a fresh flow of commerce, ideas, and people, which will benefit both our countries. With a packed schedule sending him to a Coca-Cola plant, a Boeing aircraft factory, and numerous state banquets, Dung traveled across the U.S. Our children in Texas extend the hospitality of Texas to the children of China. This is in Texas, Dung took in a rodeo and a visit to the Johnson Space Center, where he sat in a lunar rover, met astronaut Alan Bean, and discussed the Apollo program. Uh, I wanted to uh, show you some uh, examples of the lunar material that we brought back from the lunar surface. By March, America had formally recognized the Chinese Communist Party as the government of China and upgraded its embassy in mainland China. Treasury Secretary Blumenthal gave a speech to welcome the new ambassador. Our histories and our political and economic systems are different. Yet we can trade together and we can work together for a better world. The symbols of change then took place. A new embassy emblem replacing the old emblem. Inside the compound, Treasury Secretary Blumenthal met with a group of American business representatives, all of them hoping to get a slice of what they see as a vast new market among China's one billion population. But in Congress, there was concern among both Republicans and Democrats that America's newfound enthusiasm for communist China left Taiwan acutely vulnerable to attack. 
The result was a new law, the Taiwan Relations Act, in April 1979, that made clear that the US would continue to sell arms to Taiwan and carefully set out a deliberately ambiguous policy of support that stopped short of a promise to militarily defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese assault. John, let's start with you. Can you explain what strategic ambiguity is? It's essentially a policy of keeping options open, and more importantly, of keeping China and Taiwan guessing over whether the United States would, in fact, take military action to defend Taiwan. On the one hand, you don't want Taiwan to be so confident that they declare independence and start a war, but you also don't want China to be sure that the Americans won't show up. So it's about keeping the Chinese guessing whether America will show up, while also maintaining the sort of military capacity that would lend itself to being used in defense of Taiwan. It has worked so far in the sense that it has deterred China from attacking and also deterred Taiwan from declaring formal independence. Charlotte, that strategic ambiguity has its critics, some of whom think that America ought to give a clearer guarantee on Taiwan security. But I don't know about you, I kind of like it. It seems like quite a grown up policy and one that acknowledges up front that it's really impossible to know in advance what America's reaction would be were Taiwan to be invaded. It would depend on so many things. It would depend on what was going on in America at the time, who the president was, the nature of that invasion. And as much as these sorts of things can be war-gamed, it's just really hard to know what it would feel like until it happened. I think that's right. And the critique is from people who have spent a lot of time thinking about this, including Robert Gates, the former defense secretary and CIA director, Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations, who advise Colin Powell. The danger is that by drawing no lines, you trip into a war accidentally. And what's changed, as our colleagues wrote about in a cover story in May, is that China's military buildup has really accelerated, that you've had um, a big ramp up in advanced fighter planes in major ships and, and submarines, that the Chinese Navy has 90 major ships and submarines in the past five years that it's launched, which is um, at least four times as many as America has in the Western Pacific. As a whole, Chinese military spending is still much a fraction of what America's is. It's 1.7% of GDP compared with 3.7% of GDP for American defense spending. But what matters is where some of those assets are located And I think that in the area around Taiwan, it's not really clear that America would win. And you see China increasingly feeling emboldened here. And so what some of these people are are arguing, um, Gates and, and Haas and others, is that there's a big enough risk here that we need to be a bit more clear than we were in the past. I think one other thing that's changed on this, at least from talking to David, is the way that China views America. I think strategic ambiguity from the America of the 1990s or the 2000s, the self-confident hegemon, is sort of different from strategic ambiguity of the America of today, right? I think that's exactly right. I think if I'm Chinese, I'm looking at an America that is domestically polarized and riven. Its institutions aren't working very well. It just withdrew chaotically from Afghanistan. Donald Trump came to office promising an end to forever wars. It seems exhausted at its role of being the world's policeman. So if I'm looking at that from Beijing and seeing, you know, congressional hawkishness, I don't think I believe it. I think strategic ambiguity may be a cover at this point for weakness. On the other hand, nothing unites a country like a war. So I think that may be a fatal underestimation on China's point if it were to launch an attack. 
OK, we'll be back in a moment to ask a broader question about what America would fight for. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist's diplomatic editor, Anton Logardia, has written a briefing on American foreign policy in this week's edition of The Economist. And the framing question for that article is, what will America fight for? It includes a startling image of what looks like a US aircraft carrier deck incongruously moving through a desert and apparently used as target practice by the People's Liberation Army. I began by asking Anton why advocates of a US military defence of Taiwan believe the island is so crucial. If you talk to strategists, they talk about the first island chain. This is a chain of islands that runs from Japan down to Taiwan, down to the Philippines, over to Indonesia, and essentially bottles up the Chinese in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. If you're a strategist, that island chain is very important. You want to hang on to it. And if the Chinese were to retake Taiwan, apart from the fact that it's an admirable democracy and would be... Uh, a kind of assault on the American order, it would also allow the Chinese much easier access to the rest of the Pacific and therefore would be seen as a threatening thing strategically. In this week's briefing, you write about the range of opinion in Washington on Taiwan from maintaining the strategic ambiguity, which you described, and which I think is the sort of mainstream position, to those who think that actually America needs to give a more explicit security guarantee to Taiwan, and then to those who think that actually America needs to withdraw and retrench and stop trying to play this role of of global policeman. And I think one of the very interesting things about the briefing for me was the way that you identified that current of opinion as as seemingly a growing one in Washington. The challenge of China, or the competition, as Joe Biden calls it, is so big that it actually rearranges positions. So you have on the restraint side who say, let's get out of the Middle East, let's get out of Europe, let's retrench. You have some people on the restraint side saying, but let's keep a presence in Asia because China is so big. On the hawkish side, you would have thought that they would say, we must be even more clear and explicit about our willingness to defend Taiwan, we must put troops in and so on. On the hawkish side, uh, you hear people who say, actually, no, to give Taiwan an explicit guarantee would only invite China to try and cross those new red lines. And therefore, we we shouldn't do that. So opinion is very mixed within each of the camps. And I would say that the restraint school has a distinct presence in academic discussions about policy. And as you know, there's a lot of interplay between the academic side and actual policy making and that people in think tanks go into government and vice versa. And you're starting to hear some of their arguments appear from the utterances of people in government. So you see people say restraint is not about a dirty word. They'll remember that Obama and Bush senior and Eisenhower uh, were quite restrained. 
So uh, I think it, it's an interesting moment in the internal American debate. I don't think the administration, for example, is there. But there are moments, there are moments when it has flashes, when you think there is quite a lot of this restraint thinking. And I guess the prime example of that would be Joe Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, regardless of what happened in Afghanistan. Anton, let's hope this doesn't happen, but let's play a thought experiment or a war game. Imagine that China did go for it next year and tried to invade Taiwan. Do you think America would come to Taiwan's defence? Or if that's too tough a question, because I sense from your answers so far that it may be impossible to answer that, what are the factors do you think that would determine whether America did come to Taiwan's defence or not? So first of all, John, it is difficult to say because because of this question of ambiguity. I think, though, that when you talk to people in government and the think tanks, it is quite clear that they think they will intervene. And even if there's any doubt, the Chinese have to calculate that the Americans may well intervene. A lot of people think that you would not get a kind of Pearl Harbor-style assault on Taiwan precisely because the American, it might provoke the Americans into intervening. So what you might get is things in the so-called gray zone. Uh, the Chinese would test and probe. Uh, they would do cyber attacks. They might take some outlying islands, particularly the ones that are close to China, and see how the Taiwanese and the Americans respond. They might impose a blockade. Uh, the Americans impose a blockade on, on Cuba, uh, forcing, staring down the Soviet Union. So it is possible that they would try that and see what the Americans did. That would place the onus on the Americans to escalate, to take action and risk a war against a rising superpower uh, that is arming itself, for example, with a lot more nuclear weapons. So I think that would give pause for the Americans to think about, you know, is this a circumstance in which we would want to get involved? Can we find a way out? Uh, it is telling that in the context of the Ukraine, which is currently the live issue, the Americans are signaling that they'll do lots of things, sanctions and so on, but they're not going to put troops in uh, to Ukraine. And I suspect the Chinese will be watching quite carefully what happens there. So, Charlotte, I think we got a good sense from Anton there of quite how hard it is to answer this question about whether America would go to war for Taiwan's defense. But what can we tell from public opinion? What do the polling numbers say on this for what it's worth? The Chicago Council on Global Affairs, which I know from my years in Chicago, uh, did a poll on this in the summer, in August. And the results of it were interesting in that they showed a big increase of support for an American response if China were to invade Taiwan. So 52% of respondents favored the use of American troops if China were to invade Taiwan. That's up from uh, 26% back in 2014. So that's a pretty big jump. However, I was kind of struck by the other responses to the survey. I mean, it was a minority of respondents who supported a promise that America would respond if China were to invade. And there's kind of a general view that America should be partnered with Taiwan. But it's very evident in the responses that a lot of Americans just don't really have a strong view or understanding of Taiwan in general. And so, you know, I think that there's a danger of over-interpreting 
the support for American action in Taiwan, um, particularly when we don't really know what the consequences would be. Bridge Colby is someone on the conservative side who has written extensively about Taiwan, and he talks about being prepared to fight, quote, a limited war against China. You know, limited how? How how do you limit it? Um, And he has views on this, but I just think it's quite tricky and dangerous. I agree. It seems like the sort of thing that can spiral out of control Anton's reference to Ukraine, though, and warnings of of sanctions, things like that, it's worth thinking through the non-military options America has for dealing with China in case of invasion of Taiwan. It seems to me they're far more limited than they are when it comes to Russia, right? Yeah. America could effectively shut Russia out of the global financial system, in particular SWIFT interbank transfer networks without a tremendous amount of pain because Russia's economy is small Mm. and Americans really aren't very heavily invested there. That's just not true with China. The two countries are so deeply intertwined that the risk, in the same way that a limited war risks spiraling out of control, I think economic sanctions also risk doing damage to both countries. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that makes China policy so hard for America is that China, frankly, is too big to push around in the way that many other countries aren't. It's not just that China's economy is very large. It's the fact that it's so intertwined with America's economy that the sorts of options you could see America using to try and deter Russia and Ukraine are just not really available to America when it comes to China. We touched on this already, but it seems to me that one of the things you have to consider from the American side about whether the country would go to war to defend Taiwan is what's going on politically in America at that time. I mean, we're talking at a moment when America does seem exhausted after 20 years of the wars on terror. But in a decade's time, that might no longer be the case. On the other side of the equation, I think were Donald Trump re-elected in 2024, it seems pretty unlikely to me that he would risk American lives in defense of a far-off place like Taiwan, though of course he's unpredictable and so you can't say for sure. If it were a different kind of Republican president, you know, a more conventional hawk like Marco Rubio, though I think his chance of getting the nomination are minuscule, but even so, then it seems much likelier to me that America would uphold that ambiguous commitment to Taiwan. Equally, I think on the Democratic side at the moment, the foreign policy thinkers are just more mainstream, more inclined to uh, uphold that that soft security guarantee that America's given to Taiwan. Yeah, I think if I were Taiwanese, I would be very worried about Donald Trump's re-election the same way I would if I were Latvian, Ukrainian, Estonian. I think that Donald Trump's fondness for dictators and deal-making is such that there's a real risk that all Xi Jinping or Putin has to do is basically rub his belly and he'd sell anyone down the river. John, I think I agree with that. However, it's also the case that plenty of people in Taiwan saw Donald Trump as standing up to China, at least on trade. And, and I think he was sort of relatively popular in Taiwan, perhaps surprisingly so, given your analysis, which I think is correct. One thing that I think is important to remember is the way that America needs to continue to build up its economic relationships with countries in the Pacific. Australia has had a continuing spat with Beijing, um, which has escalated. But actually, um, its trading relationships are strong enough that the measures taken against by China against Australia haven't really had the devastating economic impact that Beijing would have liked. Um, some coal from Australia was sent over to India instead of going to China. Um, Australia also benefits from having other natural resources, namely lithium, which China wants, which has helped to make it more resilient. But I think that um, 
the more that you can build up the economic relationship between America and other allies in the Pacific, the stronger America's position is. Yeah, Charlotte, I think that's absolutely right. And in the meantime, we just have to hope that this strange equilibrium holds. I mean, you have this situation where China sort of pretends that Taiwan wants to become part of China. Taiwan has to pretend not to be too nationalistic for fear of annoying people in mainland China. And America's commitment to defending Taiwan is sort of ambiguous. But you can see from things like the defense budget, which the House House of Representatives passed this week, which contains all sorts of line items for buying new kit for the Air Force and the Navy in particular, that America at least appears to be pretty serious about having the option to defend Taiwan if it wants to. So that equilibrium is easily upset and we just have to hope that it holds. That seems like a slightly downbeat note on which to end things. So before we go, as is traditional, I have a quiz for you. On May 15th, 2003, The Economist took a look at feuding family businesses in an article entitled The Cain and Abel Problem. One of the organizations mentioned was the Taiwanese giant Formosa Plastics. Portuguese sailors in the 16th century called Taiwan the Ilha Formosa. But what does the name mean? My Portuguese is rusty. My Portuguese is pretty good. I'm not sure I would have got this. I think it refers to Formosa. Um, hmm. No, the only thing I think of is formic acid in ants, but I think it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> that would be really niche. Yeah, exactly. Extremely strange nickname. Yeah. I think it has to do with some kind of animal. I'd go for lizard, arbitrarily. I'm afraid neither of you gets a point. Formosa is normally translated as beautiful, though I think it probably should be shapely. So it was it was the beautiful island for, for the Portuguese explorers. Other family businesses mentioned in the article, not all of them dysfunctional, include the Gucci's, McCain's, Pritzker's and De Kuyper's. Which business was each family in? And you get a bonus point if you can tell me the hometown of the company. OK, Pritzker's were hotels in Chicago. Oh, my goodness. Um, the- That's a point. Are McCain's, are McCain's potatoes? Frozen food. I think that's near enough. So Gucci was Gucci. Um, Where was Gucci Gucci? In Italy, in Milan. Florence. Oh, but, Florence, but, sorry. But pretty good. You, can, you, get, you get a point for Gucci is Gucci, I think. And then... <laughs> and is De Kuyper jewels or mining? De Kuyper. How do you spell that? D-E-K-U-Y-P-E-R. Like, I can see it. But is it, is it jewelry or mining? And they sound South African. Yeah, that sounds like a good guess. Yeah, like De Beers, only only you haven't heard of them. Apparently they were distillers over 10 generations, and they started in Rotterdam. And they're still distilling away in Rotterdam, apparently. Do they make that weird sort of oily Dutch gin? I don't know. I've never drunk oily Dutch gin. Oily gin. Hmm. (laughs) You're not missing much. Yeah, it doesn't sound appetizing. You're not selling it hard, I have to say. (laughs) How's this cocktail? Well, I'd recommend it to you. It's it's quite oily. (laughs) (laughs) well i will leave you to go and mix your oily cocktails thank you charlotte thank you john thank you thanks john thanks also to our producer julia johnson and to our sound engineer nicola rofast if you like the podcast then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review you can get in touch with us via email the address is podcasts at economist.com in the meantime thanks very much for listening stay safe and stay sane We'll have more checks and balance next week.